Yo and hello, I'm Vinny Padestivo and you're listening to I Have a Podcast. Today we have someone near and dear to my heart. This is a person who's truly helped me revolutionize the entire world of unscripted TV casting as we know it. And he found talent in expected and unexpected places all throughout the world, something I truly, truly admire and respect. I'm talking about Duran. Ophir, the brilliant mastermind genius behind some of pop culture's biggest moments. He's someone that I've had the honor of working with and knowing in New York City, in Miami, in Los Angeles, and I'm excited to dig in life and why people love TV so much. I never thought in my wildest dreams that I would be living the life that I'm living. So that's the first thing. You know, I grew up a latchkey kid in New York City. My parents worked, you know, I was on my own from the age of five. I used to walk to school and back and like, you know, my mother took me by my hand and, you know, sort of introduced me to all of the weird store vendors, like, you know, like the Korean fruit grocer. And on the way it said, this is my son, watch him, he's gonna walk back and forth. And it was weird because the neighborhood kind of took care of you. And you're talking, this is the seventies, you know? I was fiercely independent. And I always talk about how everything I learned about life, I learned from TV because it was TV that raised me. You know, I would sit cross-legged and watch television. And I would watch the original sitcom. So, you know, I learned about racism through all of my family and I and Good Times and the Jeffersons and that that whole Norman Lear world was what educated me about the family unit because mine didn't look like that. I couldn't relate to my own environment. I only learned it through the world of the television medium, which is why I'm a fan of television. I like movies, but movies aren't long enough. Character development doesn't happen in a two hour movie. It does happen over years of a television series, which is why you fall in love with sitcom families or you know, dramatic series. And it evolved because as I started to get older, I started to watch the daytime talk shows, things like Sally Jesse Raphael and Donahue. So that's where I started learning my life lessons. And because I was an introvert, I was very flamboyant. It made me an outcast. So I was an outcast in, in a very busy world. And it taught me the tools that I didn't actually need the interaction or the peer recognition, although I desperately wanted it. And I hurt terribly growing up as an adolescent. And, and the city became sort of my friend, but then my parents moved. They made a little bit of money. They moved into Long Island. That was a major culture shock for me. And then the next wave of my adolescence was sort of the nighttime primetime soap. So I started to embody like, you know, Alexis Carrington. And I thought that I was her. Like, and in that realm, I started to find my own sexuality. Now, again, we were not very wealthy in any way, shape, or form. So the idea of an LA lifestyle to work in television, to work in, in Hollywood, that sort of iconic dream was not really my dream. It was something that was so far away from me that I thought it was never attainable. So in the back of my head, I wished for something like that, but it never was something that I thought was attainable. So I found myself in the New York nightclub scene, and this is the 80s now. And this is at a time when, you know, the pop art world and AIDS had sort of devastated the landscape. Sure. There was nothing left. It completely redefined it. The kids took over. And the kids at the time were the club kids. And we had found a community. Well, I would come into the city and I would sort of slum it. And that's where I found the voguing scene of yeah. you know, Harlem. And the creativity that I was discovering amongst the street culture was what I fed off of. And I found a community. There was no tolerant diversity in television. So there was no role models that I could look at on TV that I could sort of relate to, except in the primetime soaps, weirdly, where they had gay characters. But even those gay characters were self-deprecating. In the 80s, we grew up knowing that gay men could not have families, probably also, to be honest, could not even have careers. So I actually think that as soon as this pandemic and the freedom is lifted, it's going to be like the Roaring Twenties. 
So visual art, self-expression, genderless expression, all of that is going to explode in a way. And when you're 17 to 30, you're going to want to dance. You're going to want to be amongst a tribe of community that is like-minded, that fosters the idea of creative art, art. And I learned that firsthand coming out of the last pandemic. I created a career around it. That career also became sort of this idea of the pick and choose where you stood at a door and chose the people to go in. It had nothing to do with money. It had to do with vibe. It had to do with how you expressed yourself walking up to the door of a nightclub and whether you were worthy to be part of the interior of it all. And I was surrounded by sort of mentors of the scene, you know, Pat Fields is an icon in design. So she was a force in the world at the time. She still is. You know, after doing Emily in Paris and all of that, Sex in the City, that's how people recognize her if the name doesn't ring a bell off. But she had a boutique in St. Mark's on 8th Street in the East Village where that was a cornerstone of community. Everything came about community. You found your tribe. You found people of a like mind. So it didn't matter who your peer group was. And for me, it was all about self-expression. How does somebody self-express right from the get-go? It's an inner confidence. And so that's how I developed my eye as being a pick and choose door guy. That extended, you know, I ended up moving to Miami. You know, Miami was just burgeoning. There was nothing like it. South Beach was just being born. I was in the right time at the right place. I was working at all the mega clubs. Again, pick and choose. You couldn't buy your way in. The money bottle sort of VIP table service thing, that didn't start until 20 years later. It wasn't about money. It was about fabulosity. And there's a term in casting that I've used and taken from those days, which is no matter where you're from, there's like the fab 500 of any given state. And then there's like the fab 50 of any town. And what I mean by that is they're the fabulous people that define a region. It's the one person at the department store that actually understands makeup at the makeup counter. It's the waitress at the diner that knows everybody's sort of world, but is a character on her own. They're the gatekeepers. They're the people that move style forward. So you'll find them in, in any small town and in any big city in the world. And the big cities tend to have a larger concentration of them. And I'm attracted to those kinds of people. So even in Miami, I was collecting them. The whole time I was doing all of this madness and sort of making a living for myself as this sort of archetype character and character collector, working in the modeling industry, being a new faces person, you know, like developing boards. And now my home base is Miami. I'm sort of king of nightclubs there. So I'm running the biggest clubs of the world, partnered with Madonna, Liquid, you know, blah, blah, blah. Reality starts to happen. The television movement in Los Angeles. They were using traditional casting directors to try and find real people talent. And real people talent aren't on a database. And this is before social media. So there was no way to contact these people in any sort of broad strokes way. You had to be grassroots. You had to go where the people were in which to be able to approach them. So recruiters that were hired by, I don't know, casting companies or networks would be sent to Miami because we were such a hot spot at the time. And they would sort of fall flat. They wouldn't be able to navigate the scene. And again, that Fab 50 or Fab 500, I was one of them. So you come to the gatekeeper oh, yeah. who knows, and I'm like, oh, I do know that person. You're looking for a blonde, blue-eyed Asian girl? Like, that's that's a unicorn. I, I have one for you. Her name is. She works at. She's at the Met counter. She's, you know, it's like she's a cocktail waitress. You know, she's a dolphin trainer at Miami Aquarium. Like, whatever. Like, we know. So I became that person. And suddenly, every day, I would get a call. Hi, this is CBS calling for Survivor. We're looking for couples, you know, great model couple for Temptation Island. Like, and it was all the big splashy shows. And I kept being that person. So my name started becoming synonymous with when in Miami called Iran. But I was doing yeah. all of this for free. 
people were coming to Miami for castings. And also one thing to note, if you go to Miami for castings, you have to come back with something. So if they come down there, they don't quite know what they're looking for, but they know they want to have fun. One of the ways that they find what they're looking for is just by searching for what they truly are looking for anyway, which is fun. And here you come literally with pocketfuls of people. And it's funny because in my world, some of the most notorious reality show legends were all sort of orbiting my world regardless. Whether they had been found elsewhere, I knew these people personally. So like Dr. Will Kirby is an example. You know, he's considered the, the greatest villain in reality television show history on Big Brother. He was on Big Brother, what, two, three? Um, oh, and uh, so, back and back and back. So he, was my doctor's, he was my doctor's assistant in my head. Trista. Bachelor one, first ever bachelorette. She was a Miami heat dancer and a cocktail waitress at Crowbar, where I ran the door. We all knew each other through two degrees or three degrees of separation. Growing up in a creative time in New York City, like in the 70s and 80s, I can't imagine what that was like. Actually, it's the New York City club kid. Like as a latchkey kid from New York City, as an independent outcast myself, I can imagine and relate to needing to build community in a city that just seems bigger than me. And I think it's right here where we get to see Duran's journey as a scrappy young genius begin right before he moves to Los Angeles. Nightlife is yeah. for, for dating shows and big personalities because that's what the type is attracted to. But retail sales is another. It's places where you interact with customers all day long and you're able to sort of hone your delivery because you have to. Today's environment is different because you're dealing with social media and most of these people are talking to a camera. So there's no return for their investment. There's no cross communication. They're talking at you and then they're reading your responses as an after effect. It's sort of like literally sending an email. You wait for the response. There is no back and forth. But back then you had to. Lynn Spillman, you know, she was the first from CBS who kind of sort of reached out and said, listen, I know your name, blah, blah, blah. You know, if you're ever in LA, look me up. And I came to LA on a trip to visit friends and I looked her up. And we had this funny, she invited me to, to, to her offices and they were doing Survivor and Survivor had become a bona fide hit. And she said, hey, listen, you know, if you move to LA and if you're here, um, you have a job. And no one had ever said that to me before. And I had just literally graduated college. I got my master's. I was king of the world there. So in terms of finances and money and sort of power and prestige, it's like I was a very big fish in a very small town and I believed my own hype. There's an ego involved. And I'm not gonna lie, it was fun to be me. You know, like I was the person you had to pass to get in anywhere. And there was nowhere that I couldn't get into if you were with me. So that was a certain amount of clout that you don't get anywhere else. Yeah. And that was, by the way, in New York, Chicago and Miami, just not in LA. And that's not celebrity access level. Like celebrities get turned away as we know. The celebrities would also come to me. That was the other yeah, thing. So any sure. celebrity that arrived to Miami, whether it was Britney <laughs> yeah. Spears or Justin Timberlake or Vin Diesel or you know Johnny Knoxville or Pink, they all had to come through me. Puffy was there, and you know, and I knew J Lo because J Lo's ex-husband was in my like group of friends. Like so it was this world that was really sort of Hollywood elite, but I was just a worker bee. And I also thought that those celebrity connections would help me if I ever moved to LA. So there was this weird kind of like, I'm going to go and take over the world. That's not what happened. Yeah, I, Miami is a little bit of a bubble. What happens in Miami, oh. it doesn't necessarily stay in Miami. It goes out for sure. But things happen in Miami that don't necessarily happen outside of Miami. I also <laughs> don't Miami. think so anymore. 
This was a very specific time. Miami was very new. It wasn't as accessible as it is now. It was concentrated to the strip of South Beach. It didn't extend into the downtown. Yeah, this is like Birdcage, Miami. This is Birdcage, Miami. <laughs> and the modeling industry was centered there. Yeah. So you're talking, this is the time of Versace. And he had this house there. And every supermodel was in flip-flops walking by. And so you were mingling with the most beautiful people on the planet. And you're talking globally. And so um, accessible too, by the way. And, and again, it wasn't about money. Yeah. So you could be a surfer, you could be a barback, you could be whatever. And you were in the same venue as Johnny Depp. It was yeah. like anything and everything. So I come to LA. So then I get this weird, this weird job offer. I take it literally, by the way. I pack my shit. I leave. I move cross country. I get an apartment. I walk into the office. She said something about like my September 12th, if you're here. I walk in and she's like, what are you doing here? Duran was a big fish in Miami and he left it all behind on the word of someone he didn't even know. I think he wanted this moment so bad, he was willing to make anything happen to make it happen. And that's exactly what he needed to do. Because when he got to Los Angeles, well, he was in for a surprise. <laughs> I was like, I moved here, you offered me a job, I'm here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna work for Survivor. And she was like, no, I never said that. And I was like, wait, what? And um, she said, yeah, she goes, you know, like, I don't really, I have a staff, okay. And I remembered like my heart sank. And I was like, I just left everything. I said, well, I'm here. So if you need me, just call. And then she was like, well, I like your attitude. And she was like, and I'll do that. And I suddenly found myself in LA and I thought, okay, I have a bit of a reputation. Let me see what's out here. But LA is enclosed in a way that it's very hard to get in. People are very protective of their roles. So even though I had this Warner Brothers film background, I was a field director for Warner Brothers. I had the conversation with the marketing and promotions at Warner Brothers here thinking maybe I would get a job there. I, I'll make coffee. I don't care. They were like, no, there's no room for you. They were like, you are great for Miami. You're not great for LA. And I kept getting this like advice from these sort of like titans of the industry that would say, you know, LA is about keeping your head down and doing the job. You're like a noisemaker and you're distracted. And so I had to kind of figure out something new because I wasn't going to enter the corporate structure. The networks didn't know me. They weren't going to hire me. I was at the time 30. So this is not like I'm coming in here at 21. I knew a couple of things. I knew grassroots promotion and marketing. I knew how to word things in a way that made people interested, regardless of what the product or thing was. Since no one was going to hire me, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make believe as if I'm hiring them. That was my approach. I created a business card. I said I was a casting director and people believed it and they started to hire me. My first show was under Neil Constantini was Are You Hot? The Search for America's Sexiest People. And so it was perfect for me. You know, I knew yeah, them. Well, yeah, and that's like, a, I'm thinking about like, just like model beach ball and like that whole culture that you grew up with down there in Miami, to be able to have a, such a laser sharp focus and discerning eye to be able to differentiate between good and great. I could walk a line and I can pull people out of the line instantly. And you know, mm -hmm. as people say, well, what about their personality? I was like, you wear your personality. Mm -hmm, personality exactly. is something, you know, you could be, you know, if, 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 not always, not always. There are people who surprise you. But in the big picture of things, there's something about, the aura that one gives out. It's what they define as the it factor. And that it factor, you can have ingrained talent, but there's something that rises above that makes somebody pop. 
my career started to really define that because everybody that I was able to identify where the producers and the networks aligned became standout stars and have maintained their fame, if you will, and longevity in whatever careers they moved on to came really from the shows that I worked on. Jersey Shore is considered the most enduring ensemble cast in reality television history. People talk, oh, well, the housewives, but the housewives have different wives that join every season or every other season. They don't maintain. Jersey Shore has been the same cast since its inception. The people go, well, what about Dina and Angelina? But Angelina and Dina were all cast on the same series. It was Dina that dropped out last second because she had a family crisis. So she came back in the following season and then it sort of, you know, Angelina left. It was like this thing where that cast had been locked from day one and with multiple spinoffs and sort of this enduring love and fame because of their authenticity. Because what you see is what you get with them. If you meet them in real life, they're exactly what you see on TV. There's no pretense there. Looking back in this industry, I forged a company. I forged a name. Art imitates life. And I achieved a certain level of success in it. From a monetary point of view or an entrepreneurial point of view, there are certain things that I misstepped because I didn't know how to protect myself. And what's interesting is, is for casting directors and reality television, if you work on a game show, you are contestant casting. You're casting new characters to appear on the game show every episode. Mm -hmm. Multiply by 10 game shows, you're always working. For me, because I have sort of carved this niche in the world of docu-soap or large personality castings, I get hired once. Mm -hmm. That cast shows up on television and ends up doing 800 episodes of a television series, but I'm not continuously working. And there is no safety net within my form of the industry, which is, well, for every season you get paid because you've discovered them. It doesn't work that way. The no, network. And, and to be, I'm sure, I know I've asked for attachment deals. I'm sure you have as well, too. So, like, just to say, it's not that in our most successful strides, we didn't try to get that too. It's just, they are not giving that out. <laughs> well, they, well, because they say, this is the budget. You're hired to do this. It's sort of mm-hmm. like you're hired to paint this house. So you paint the house. You can't say, well, the paint's still on next year, you know, pay me again. And I understand that as a business person, but when I watched other colleagues and companies that were similar to mine or came after mine, or even came from me, came from like mm-hmm. my school of casting because you know, they had worked for me at one point or another to see them sort of leapfrog, you know, it's a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow. And from an industry point of view, we were not even recognized by any kind of anything until what, three years ago when the Emmys finally decided to say casting is deserving of an Emmy. The industry is always evolving, constantly changing, and there are going to be new rules, tools, and players probably throughout the rest of your career. But there's one thing that people have always loved, and it is a good, clear archetype. And Duran has had his finger on this fact for years, from follow docs to scripted reality to long-form ensemble shows to the episodic contestant casting. The rules of unscripted casting have changed over the years. What's even more disheartening about that is that they haven't been able to differentiate what casting in reality is because contested casting is a very different skill set than docu-series or docu-soap casting because an enduring cast that has to carry a series episode by episode cannot be pit up against the voice. It's night and day. And if you take a judging panel, for instance, because using the voice as an example, that has an extraordinary judging panel that's deserving of recognition. But the judging panel isn't necessarily the contestants. 
So that Emmy should be divided into three separate categories, to be honest, but no one has sort of touched into industry veterans to ask those questions. I'm grateful for the shows I've done, you know, because we've changed the conversation. Reality television gets a bad rap, but we have changed the conversation globally about who people are. And now, like I said, when I first started this whole thing, people have fallen in love with real people, not scripted people from TV that they can relate to that allows them to be recognized. So whether you're gay, straight, trans, come from an urban environment, come from a a rural environment, whether you're socioeconomically come from nothing and you sort of achieve something, it doesn't matter. Every archetype has been featured on one of these shows at one point or another. I've heard you talk about archetypes. I think it was The Breakfast Club you talked about. like Behind me. Yeah, like a tremendously impactful. I pull from that movie as I'm casting like my ensemble series, but I heard you talk a little bit about like literally how those archetypes like ruled your life. And I, I leaned into that to be honest, in my own personal career as well, probably dating back to like 2010, 29, I think is probably when I heard you say something like that. And I was like, yeah, that's a great, well, Johnny, that just makes me feel so good to be able to create and fill a space as opposed to have to fill the space and create it and just know, did I create a big enough space in my, for a big enough character? You know, as we Look, that, movie, that movie is a time capsule. So if you watch it today, sometimes it doesn't date well because people can't relate. But that movie, what John Hughes was able to do in terms of the definition of an archetype was he gave every single person somebody to identify with. The nerd, the basket case, the princess, the jock, the rebel. And you can take that and you can put that in any kind of an ensemble cast because they exist in real life, even amongst group of friends. The other poster behind me is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That book did the same thing. It took kids with bad behavior and broke them down from the brat. You know, to, you know, to, to, to oh, kid yeah. that was attention starved to, you know, it was all, it was. Veruca, it, yeah, absolutely. It makes sense. It's archetypes. So it, and people are like that in real life. Now, when they're forced, it doesn't work. What, why real world worked so well is they took archetypes. Why Jersey Shore worked so well was because we took archetypes, but we, they were cut from the same cloth. They weren't a Mormon, a Southern Baptist preacher, a liberal transgender artist and thrown in a, in a blender and see, see, see how they act when they are not so polite. Jersey Shore took all of them from the same background. They all understood what a great Sunday night dinner was. They all kind of had the same lingo and language, very similar to a show about, let's say, a bunch of gay guys. They're going to mm-hmm. have a, they're going to have a similar vocabulary. No matter where they're from, they're going to understand that tense So that's what made Jersey Shore work. They all understood this Italian-American stereotype that they had embraced that today would be politically incorrect. And even then it was. Remember, Domino's boycotted. They made a whole stick about that. They universally were tapped into something that they were able to explain to the rest of the world in a way that gave it a perspective. It wasn't one Italian story. It was five very different Italians. But wait, Italians can be different too? They all all knew how to self-identify. Yeah. And that's what that's what that's what I tend to find in any subculture. Although America is a melting pot and we are even trying to blur those lines even further, there is something about self-identification that works. And it's funny because we're divided now by cultural appropriation where people will say, well, you're culturally appropriating my name. And the same token, they're trying to blur those lines and, you know, sort of homogenize it. And I'm somebody who embraces both. I don't think you need to have one or the other. I think you have both. I think you could be a gay male 
and be effeminate and be masculine and be American and work on an oil field. I don't think that you have to be one or the other. You don't have to be a drag queen. And you can wash your hands of that and repeat in any subcultural format or type. And it can be, you're a Jesuit. It doesn't matter. You know, the Amish did that really well with breaking Amish. Like we're all the same. It just depends on how we, what we find funny, what makes us laugh universally and where our commonalities are. I love that analogy. And I'm also, my head is spinning about Willy Wonka too. You're absolutely right. It's so crystal clear that there's like literally one for everybody. I remember when 13 Reasons Why came out and I started getting calls from networks being like, you know, our cast should reflect 13 Reasons Why. I was like, why? <laughs> I was like, yeah. what are you talking about? I was like, that show is like depressing. <laughs> and they were like, no, no, no. The United Colors of Benetton of it all. You know, where that group of friends with every sort of walk of life, you had every race. And I said, okay. I said, however, it doesn't really reflect the landscape. If you walk into a high school anywhere, you're still going to find cliques. You know, Mean Girls did that really well when they defined mm -hmm. the cliques of, of the cafeteria. Yes, some of them are going to be broken up by race. And some of it is going to be broken up by socioeconomic, where wealthy kids are going to stay with other wealthy kids and you're going to be on the wrong side of the tracks. These stories endure for a reason because they're relatable. So you can't just force them. You can't say, oh, we're going to have a cast that is multi-diverse in any kind of way, which, yes, if it happens organically, if that exists. And you yeah. do find that, you tend to find that really in evolved um, neighborhoods. So if you go into Brooklyn, if you go into Silver Lake in Los Angeles, if you go into mm -hmm. Detroit now, you'll start to see where there's a, there's a merging of cultural types, religious and not. And that's really interesting because that's the next wave. That's what's coming. And I think that Hollywood's trying to represent that. But sometimes it has to be done in a way that is actually accurate. I'm sure the neighborhoods have a lot to do with those fine gems being discovered. But I'm also finding that the very people I'm hiring to cast and I'm bringing into my team are not the traditional casting people that I used to work with. I'm finding just really interesting people who are really did. curious to meet people. Yeah, I never hired from within. Again, I was an outsider. It goes back to finding your people. It goes back to finding people with a like mind. And it doesn't matter, you know, who you are. You gravitate to that. And by the way, again, there's nothing wrong with it. You know, we talk about the people that are religious, you know, and they find spirituality together and they share that commonality. It's great if that's what works for them. So there's nothing wrong with finding your tribe. When you talk about my in casting, if I have to cast something, I don't know anything. I'm the person that's now hiring a group of people to educate me, show me what yep. exists and prove to me why these individual people can be the mouthpieces or the representation of whatever the subject matter is. That's 101 in casting. Now, if you have people who have files and are great on the computer, that's all fine and great. But at the end of the day, you need to get your hands dirty and enter a world that you've never been in before. And that can be anything. If you want somebody who is a naturalist, or if you're looking for people off the grid, or if you're looking for, you know, people who are fascinated with bird watching. So if I'm doing a show about artists or art curators or art gallery owners, I'm going to find somebody in the Fab 50 in any individual city that works at an art gallery because they do it all day, every day. And I'm going to say, hi, I'm hiring. I need you to find me everyone that's just like you <laughs> mm -hmm. in the world that you already know, because it, it's a much faster way to enter a closed environment if you come from within. Yeah. If I want to do unorthodox, the reality series, I can't send 
one of my casting people from LA into Crown Heights, Brooklyn and pretend that they're a Hasidic Jew. Right. What I need to find is somebody right. who had just left that world or is working with media and relations within that world to sort of introduce me to it and say, we, you have a story to tell, we want to hear it. And then filter in the best of the storytellers. It's a great way to learn. It's a great way to make sure that you are not editing the information that's coming to you, that it's just like an open flow of really reality. And I, I, I love the idea of the Fab 50. I agree with you. I'm like bartenders, grocery store clerks, anyone who checks anybody in or out of anything. I'm always like, those are the ones. Whatever the hippest hotel is, you know, every city has whatever mm -hmm. the hotel is that just opened. Whoever's working the concierge of that hotel, because they know everything. Yeah. And by the way, they'll all take a side job. They won't admit it, but you can offer them and say, listen, I'm coming into town. When are you off? Can you take me out? I'm gonna hire you to be my sort of tour guide of what's cool. Like in LA, it's funny, people go, oh, well, LA has no nightlife. Oh, it does. It has an enormous underground nightlife culture that's happening in warehouses all over the place. And you don't know about it. I'm talking about pre-pandemic or even during pandemic I've heard, but you know, unless you are part of the list and you've been vetted, you don't know how to get in there. That's like you bring that up about social media is that the world of social media is so much deeper in DMs, the amount of action that's happening, not on the public side of social media for sure too. So I can only imagine in these private groups and it really, there really has been a draw to create these private groups for quicker communication, for more opportunities. Also, you don't want outsiders. Again, it's, yeah. it goes back to me standing at the door of a nightclub and being like, you can't come in. Because I didn't want to ruin the environment inside with the wrong element. So if you're a straight guy that showed up at a mixed party with six of your like straight guy friends, that element, although there may be nothing wrong with them, it may not work in a club full of drag queens. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to let you in, but you come with a couple of girls. I know that the girls are going to even up guys. It didn't matter what the event was or what the party was. Yeah. I worked every night you could imagine. You wanted to make sure that inside was a party. And television right. needs to be a party. It doesn't matter who they are. Yes, you can have people that are opinionated. You can have what's considered the quote unquote sort of villain. You know, it's fine, but they can't come from a place of aggression or violence. And that's something that we take seriously. Look, one of my favorite columns is Humans of New York because that photographer walks around and finds a person sitting on a park bench and goes, tell me your story, and captures it with one photograph. I'm a sociologist and an anthropologist. I wanna watch and I wanna learn and I wanna be fascinated by human nature. And I think that it doesn't matter what show you do, if you're doing a dating show, you want more than just a pretty face. You want somebody who is a pretty face who also not has had trauma, but has depth, that they're layered, that they're more than what meets the eye. And that is hard to do when you're dealing with a generation now that is so media trained to promote and project themselves in a way that can generate likability that they've lost who they really are. But what's fascinating is in the right hands with the right casting company, even the most closed with the right questions will suddenly reveal the truth of who they are. That's who you wanna bring forward. You know, you want to bring forward the interesting archetypes of people who put in the right circumstance, the audience will discover what we as casting directors have discovered in that moment. I love that. And that's well, a hard sell sometimes because, you know, 
Networks don't understand this. I mean, I think they do. They understand the finished product for sure. What production companies and networks don't know is the effort that it goes in to find that one diamond when you're mining through a sea of hundreds and thousands of people. And they think it's easy to find eight great characters. And it's just not. And now, even further, there is no financial fame in reality television. Most, 99% of the people who participate aren't paid for their participation. It's considered documentary filmmaking. You're telling your story and you're a part of a social experiment. And they don't understand that. Duran created an incredible life for himself, and he used all the connections and opportunities, experiences from reality TV, and launched the LA Comic-Con. Like, it's not always about business, but it is about passion for guys like us, helping people, connecting people to the tools that complement their skills, that make them successful. It's like the best part of the job, and sharing it, sharing it with people that we care about, that matters most. I never dreamed that this would be my job. And then yet I moved to LA, you know, I live in Hollywood. I achieved a certain level of success in, in a track that I never thought would ever happen. And I got to live my dream. You know, I was just a nerd. I would just go to the comic book store and read comics. And, you know, this whole superhero trend and this whole thing that's happening now, you know, I know every storyline. I know every character by heart. I know every origin story. I know every secret superpower they've got. <laughs> and, you know, and in that process, you know, I helped launch LA Comic-Con. Yeah. So the whole time I was doing all of this mess, I started a convention in Los Angeles that they said would never happen. They were like, San Diego Comic-Con is the, the crown jewel of the convention circuit. LA is 45 minutes away, and why would we do that? And I was like, because there are fans here that can't get there. And because that is so exclusive, you, you can't get tickets. So you're always on the outside looking in. I, again, wanted to be able to let you in. So I used all of the knowledge I had in the nightclub business to say, hey, here's an opportunity for fans by fans. And it got the attention of Stan Lee when he was alive and Stan Lee joined in and you know we created Stan Lee's LA Comic-Con and he became the figurehead of it. And then he passed away and LA Comic-Con now generates 145,000 ticket holders. We're the eighth largest convention in the world. Like, you know, and it happened. And I got to meet all of the people that it was dreamed to meet. And that's, like, so that's the dream of the little kid. So if and anyone- so funny. Like, here you are the king of reality TV and you're like, can I just meet a superhero? <laughs> I just want to meet- Can I just meet though. one? Yeah, like, <laughs> like, like, please, I just want to meet the voice of Batman. Where's Kevin Conway? <laughs> so I was able to sort of continuously sort of shift, pivot. Yeah. And by the way, now I have resources of 145,000 people who are pop culture fanatics that they are avid fans. So if I need something, I can tap them and say, hey, do you know? Do you know a brilliant makeup artist? Do you know a costume designer? Asking those questions, you inspire the conversation. The truth is, is you call me and tell me to find something, I'll find it. And I'll hire the right team to find what's being looked for within whatever subculture, workplace, or environment that needs to be discovered. I love that. If people are listening to this and they think that they are one of those Fab 50, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Oh my God, I love that. Well, first of all, I'm very active on social media. My Facebook, I have a group called Toronto Fair Casting and it's Toronto it's Fair Cast at Toronto Fair Cast. There's also a, a business group where you can message me. I'm on Twitter at Toronto Fair Cast. I'm on Instagram, finally got verified at okay. Toronto Fair Cast. I have a TikTok channel that has, I don't know, 1.5 million views and things, but it's not really about casting. It's all about like campy fight scenes from primetime soaps. What? I have to go catch up. I cannot believe this slipped by me. Wait, let me be clear. I'm not a content creator. I am a content 
curator. I am the video VJ at that gay bar when you were young and you would stand yes. there in between songs, you would just start laughing. That's what I do. I post those <laughs> videos. I post like cat fights and slaps and campy one-liners and funny movie scenes and old trailers of movies you forgot you saw. Like, I love, and Can I ask secretly, what's the return on energy on something like that? Like what kind of fun comments do you get from that? Because I know they're there's like CEOs and like it instigates and initiates an interesting conversation. I'm sure what you're posting. Well, I, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I have fans, um, I, but the fans, like they just, you know, what it is, it's like minded. If you're going to laugh at the trailer of Angel, the 1980s movie where she was like high school student by day, <laughs> to me, I, like I find that funny. How did reality TV get a bad rap? I'm like, look at, Look at what is on right now. I think that people just need to relax and allow people to discover the internal laughter, not be so sensitive, remove the political correctness, and sort of understand what makes us different is what makes us special and what makes okay. us unique, and find the commonalities to appreciate that difference. That's what I think is lacking right now, and I think that reality has a responsibility to shed light on that. Yeah, they do a good job at it already. They need to bring it up one notch further. And especially as these stars that we put into place grow into these opportunities in the digital world where podcasts and other alternative forms of entertainment are happening, I really encourage them to just be as incredibly creative as they were when they started. We like to let people in. We like high quality people in our industry. Like. How lucky are we that we get the be gatekeepers? I want to, to that. give them a platform to help inspire yeah. others, or that their story changes. Flora Bamashore, you know, Amy. When you talk about running around barefoot, that was her. In my in my mind, she was like a young Kelly Parker, you know, and she became sort of a standout star of that show because she has a story to tell. You watch her, and you're like, how funny her point of view is. So almost naive. But then it's so funny. And then it's like, you can't help but love her as a character archetype. And I don't make fun of, ever. Oh, but yeah. All of my I shows- don't subscribe to that either. I really, truly love people in my room. There's never been a moment where someone leaves my room and I've had a snarky comment. You have to stand out. In a weird way, you have to impress me somehow. And I don't mean it in any kind of other way than other than being yourself. But there are times when I will, I just don't see the person. Like, they just... It's not that I'm not ignoring them purposely or I'm trying yeah. to be obnoxious, but like four friends will come into a room and three of them will be animated and one just won't say a word. And the whole time I'll be like, well, how did the three of you meet? You know, and what mm-hmm. is the relationship? And then they'll leave and then somebody will be like, there was four people over there. And I'll be like, what do you mean? And they'll be like the fourth person you never even acknowledged. I was like, well, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't attract my attention. They didn't say anything. So to me, they were eliminated from the frame. Like, it's just the way my mind works. Um, like who's, but also like, here we are. Like I'm giving, you know, and if you're listening, I'm so sorry. (laughs) Truly. (laughs) I didn't mean to, but like, you know, but here we are, we show up. We, by the way, I give as much as the people who are in front of the camera do. If if it's an emotional conversation, I try not to cry or break down in conversation, but trust me, I go home at night and I sit in that. And I, I, I used to say, you know, as an empath, I take on all, but just as a person, I take on the, that trauma and that share. I took that, so, and it's such a sacred share, to be really honest. So I, it's it's sensitive, it's it's, a, well, it's delicate, and I treat it that way too, right? Well, you started this conversation by asking me if I meditate and if it becomes sort of this narrative to me. I'm one of these believers, as metaphysical as it sounds, that there is a law of attraction. And if you can visualize what your life should be, and it's clear, 
somehow the universe creates a ripple and will provide that. It's not going to be on your time frame, but somehow it does. And I hate to say it, but looking back, standing where I am now and looking backwards, I remember those moments where I visualized what it was right down to the house that I live in. You know, there was a book. People ask me, like, what book changed your life? And then there's always somebody that says, like, you know, Judy Bloom or whatever. Like, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret, or whatever. You know, um, for me, it was a book that was handed to me by friends when I was still living in Miami. And it was called Conversations with God by James Neal Walsh. And, you know, I was like, oh, you know, like, why? 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 You know, um, because I did grow up in a Jewish family. And, you know, I sort of rejected the religion, you know, after sort of, being rejected from it because of who I am. And I didn't Mm -hmm. want anyone telling me what I can and cannot be. So I have all this ingrained sort of negativity towards organized religion. So if you are a religion, be inclusive and bring people to you and maybe they will come to the fold. It's that. So when I got that book, I was like, no, but I read it. And when I read it, it was not religion. It was just spirituality. And it just, it asks you a question. If God was real and you, and was talking to you and it's sort of the voice in your head, well, what is your meaning? And that changed the way I thought. It changed the way I reacted to the world around me because no longer was I watching the world around me. I was an active participant in the world I was creating around me. It really does work if you give it the chance. Some people call it prayers. Some people call it manifestation. Some people call it the rule of attraction. Some people call it intention. It's all the same thing. And it all works as long as you can find it within yourself to uh, work through it and believe it. So that was your answer to that. So yes, I will go to the tree net and I will think, and I'll be like, what do I want next? That's actually where I got to meet some of the original cast, which is so fun to think about. That real world special is pretty cool to see that come together. I can't believe it. They haven't really changed. You don't really change. All you could do is be authentically whoever you're going to be and sort of embrace that and realize that other people's judgment never matters. It's not going to change. So you might as well just like let the world know who you are. And then the ones that appreciate you will gravitate towards you. And that's how you will find your circle. Well, thank you so much for this. I appreciate you taking time to connect with me and chat with us. This was therapy. Are you kidding? I haven't left this room in a year. You've been listening to I Have a Podcast with Vinny Podestivo. If you like what you heard and you want to hear more, please find us at IHaveAPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next week.